The home that you worked so hard to purchase or the business that you dreamed of owning deserve to shine. LDJ Cleaning Professionals specialize in commercial, residential, and disinfecting cleaning. We've served Aurora and the Quad Counties with over 20 years experience in the professional cleaning industry. Whether you're looking for window cleaning, disinfecting, or general office cleaning, we offer it all and more. Hire a true professional and call us today at 630-291-5435 or visit our website at www.ldjcleaning.com. We help you protect your investment. Rise and shine. Pour yourself a cup of coffee and tune in to Good Morning Aurora. News, weather, and really cool interviews. Monday through Friday from 8 to 9 a.m. Good morning, Aurora. Good morning, Aurora. Good morning, Aurora. The time is now 7.32 a.m. You're listening to Good Morning, Aurora, second largest city's first daily news podcast. And we've got a special episode for you guys today um, due to a lot of the consternation and lack of knowledge behind the reform bill HB 3653. We reached out to a couple of friends of ours in law enforcement, state's attorney Jamie Mosser and Kane County Sheriff Ron Hain. Both of them come on to talk to us about HB 3653, what it is that law enforcement objects to and what it is that law enforcement supports. Uh, this is very important because although the bill has been named decisive, or excuse me, um, you know, bad by its detractors, uh, it's actually not to those who support police reform. And for many people who do see it as the best thing since plastic bags for pickles, there's still a lot to be desired, and that comes directly from our friends in the law enforcement community. So what we try to do in this episode is we present just the facts. We are glad to be able to sit down with State's Attorney Mosser and Sheriff Hain to discuss the bill and see what, uh, what they like about it and what they don't like about it. Some of the topics that we will be talking about are collective bargaining, uh, detainee rights, and the system that will allow for uh, complaints. Uh, to be filed against officers, so I think it's literally called like the complaint system. Uh, those are some items that we'll be talking about. We'll also be talking about uh, decertification, so pretty much all of those topics um, that are points of concern to law enforcement in the bill. Uh, for our friends in the social justice, justice community, excuse me, we encourage you to listen in, and for our friends in the law enforcement community, we encourage you to listen in as well. This video that you will be watching was conducted live. It is here for you in its entirety. Nothing has been changed, added, or taken away. It's very good. Uh, it's full of information that you guys need. And it is factual, it's relevant, it's pertinent, and it's important. And we hope that you guys enjoy it. Don't forget to check out the show on Spotify, Good Morning Aurora, iTunes, Google Podcasts, or any other platform 
that you listen to your podcasts on. We're proud to be the second largest city's first daily news program. So real quick before we go, quick shout outs. want to say shouts out to our friends Jen Ingram Art, Cottonseed Creative Exchange, Visual Arts, Windy City Game Theater, Aurora Business United, Double A Electric, or All A Electric. So many great businesses uh, and so many great things happening in the city. Presidential Cleaning Services as well. Big shouts out. And shouts out to all of our friends out there in St. Charles, Geneva, Elgin, Batavia, uh, Wheaton, Wilmette, Chicago, North Aurora, Montgomery, Yorkville, and Caneville. And that's the news. So I think a good thing to do first would be to let the folks know who you guys are and uh, what you represent. So we'll start with you, Jamie. Perfect. So I am the newly elected Kane County State's Attorney. I took the office on December 1st yeah. and have hit the ground running since then. Very cool. Very cool. I am the not-so-newly elected <laughs> uh, been in office for just over two years now, so that's still pretty fresh. Right. But, uh, yeah, we are very focused and dialed in amongst all the other things we have to worry about on a daily basis, but this one is adding a whole new matrix <laughs> to our right. minds. Right. Um, and for those that know, or for those that may not know, HB's 3653 has not yet been signed into law. Correct. Okay, so it's currently waiting or awaiting the governor's signature. Yes. Uh, there are things, the general impression that I and people have are, is that there's things that you guys like about the bill, the things that you strongly object to. Um, so to start off with, what is, you know, what do you object uh, to about the bill? So before I get to the objections, because okay. I think we go negative okay, right. right away. We got a lot to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> this is like her going on trial right here, this right? Is, yeah. This is my opening statement. Right. So I am in favor of the reform that's in this. And so part of the problem that I think we had in the beginning is I'm a terrible politician. I've never been a politician, and I don't understand that whole process. I don't understand how you propose something and then it gets approved and then it gets edited later. Sure. I'm also an attorney, so for me, knowing that somebody voted on something that gets changed later is a foreign concept to me. So I've learned more about this, and so this actual bill and the, what is in here has actually been discussed over hundreds of hours. The Black Caucus has put this forward trying to get this reform for a long time, right. and it's mostly fallen on deaf ears. And this is something that I found out as we went through the process and we started to learn this. Right. And so what they did is they used a political strategy to get this through quickly so that we can get to reform. And while it's not the way that we work in terms of our criminal justice system, it's a way that now we're actually going to get the reform that we desperately need. And so the reason why we are so vocal about this is because we want to be a part of the process now, making sure that the language does what it's supposed to do. Okay. And so from my perspective, the biggest thing that I objected to is some of the provisions about the pretrial release. So pretrial release is eliminating cash bail, and I know we're going to talk about that right. later. The way that it ties the hands of the judges in who they can and cannot hold is my biggest objection in this, because it allows for people who are a danger to our community not to be held. Okay, right. Uh, now, specifically, the language. Yes. I think that you were harping on the language in many parts of that. Yes. Um, and Sheriff, is there a part 
you know, is there one nice little tidbit of it that you don't like, or what do you not like about the Yeah, book? I don't want to get off your agenda at all, Curtis, but I, I would like to just chime in on mm -hmm. the no-cash bail. So we're both fans of the, uh, the cashless bail system, okay? So let's get that right out and clear right. ahead of the game. So that's one of the things that we're a proponent of in this bill. But there needs to be, besides the, the state's attorney's objections about what needs to happen at the preliminary hearing, you know, the pretrial petitions, or uh, what is it? The Bond hearing, technically. So it's a pretrial release hearing. So somebody's arrested, they're taken into custody. The next day, they come over to the courthouse, and that's what we typically call our bond or bail hearing. Right. Now it's going to be called a pretrial release hearing. Okay. But what is the petition you have to file? A verified petition to hold the person. Okay. Now, you didn't have to do that before. No. So right. what happens is, essentially, we get the paperwork an hour before court starts. Okay. And this is the synopsis of the event. It's the criminal history. And we go to court and we argue. This is why a person should have a certain amount of bond, or this is why a person should be released on recognizance. And these are the conditions that we're recommending. And then a judge decides based on the crime that's charged, mm -hmm. the synopsis, the facts that make it so that we're going forward with the charge, and then the criminal history, and any prior failures to appear by a defendant in other cases. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So again, we could spend an hour talking about the cashless bail system. And we have. Yes. Right. Just, just between us. Yes. But what also needs to happen, so if somebody is remanded to a sheriff's custody, which is what the judges can do now, right. it's either... Basically, you're going to go to jail and sit, or you're going to go back home. Okay, those right. are the two options we have. So if you're going to go to jail and sit, this bill doesn't say anything about what's happening inside that jail to try and correct your behavior. So what, what it's desperately missing is simple mechanics that every correctional institution should have in place to make sure that there's corrective behavior um, taught to the people while in custody. Right. There needs to be a structured system where there's an assessment every one, three, six, nine months, however long they remain in custody, to determine if this person should be eligible for some type of release. So we've talked about that on your show before, talking about the programs we've instituted inside the King County Jail. Right. Um, we now have a very structured, graduated system where if you are performing at high levels, you can finally make it to the golden zone, which is recovery pod. Right. And we make recommendations. I write letters. Heck, I've appeared in court on behalf of defendants. I know that's been Much unpopular <laughs> with some of your folks. However, they need to think out of the box and think critically. So. You know, when I see somebody sitting in jail under a cash bail system right now, a black man who's been arrested maybe three or four times in his life, but who has a half a million dollar bond because of his criminal history for three or four grams of heroin, yes, heroin is horrible and we need to get it off the streets, but if he's sitting in my jail for two years just waiting for his trial at a half million dollar bond, but he's performing exemplary through all of our programs, right. somebody's got to step up and say, folks, Something's not right. Let's exit program this individual and see how he performs in the public. Um, is there, are there, if you can share, are there any people now who are a threat, who are incarcerated, who, if this bill was signed, what we're talking about, they, they would be able to be released without some of those. Is that a possibility? It is. And I want to give you the example of multiple DUIs. So the way that this was written is oh. if you have a forcible felony or if you're non-probational, so just because of the crime that you committed, like a murder, you're not eligible for probation. Those are the people that we can hold pre-trial. Right. Then they do other factors like domestic violence cases, stalking cases, uh, gun cases, things like that. And those are also people we can hold. 
What it leaves out are other things. So a person who commits multiple DUIs. You can commit multiple DUIs and still be eligible for probation. Why is that? Because that's the way our law is written. Our law is written so that we have a gradual step up in terms of what happens. So the first DUI you commit, assuming there's no accident, you have a license, that's a class A misdemeanor. And it, it's the right way because usually when you commit a DUI, it's because you've gone to the bar, you're drinking too much, and you make a bad decision. Right. So what we want to do, obviously, is be able to get you counseling and make sure that you never do this again. But as you commit more DUIs, then it goes up to a class 4 felony. So it keeps going up, but it doesn't mean you're necessarily automatic prison on those cases. That's a person who, based on the language of what they put in here, a judge cannot hold them because there is no identified victim. We are all right. potential victims of that person because right. we're all driving. But the way the language is in here, we would have to list a victim that they're a danger to. Who is that person? Can Curtis, I put you down on every single one because you drive on our streets? No. That's, that's the problem with this. They need to change the language for all of this to also say that they could be a danger to the community. Because a person who drives drunk multiple times is a danger to our community. Okay. Um, that's an excellent example. Thank you. So, if there if there's an individual, say this is signed into law, and an individual has a history, five DUIs, the second involved harming an, you know, an individual, they were gravely wounded. If that person commits another DUI, and now is talking to the judge in the morning, is he going to be remanded into custody, or will he be let go? So again, it depends on what he's charged with, and if it's non-probationable. Okay, because that's, that's the thing I think people, mm -hmm. literally, criminals will be able to walk free. And I, you know, I, I don't see the, I don't see, you know, justice turning that blind of an eye, so that's why. Right, it, yeah. and that's what our objection is. What this has tried to do is to keep the people out of custody who shouldn't be. Right. So we've talked about this a lot. A person who commits retail theft, most of the time people are stealing for a reason. They're stealing sometimes because they don't have food on their table. They're stealing because they're trying to supplement a drug habit. They're stealing because they have mental health issues. And again, sometimes they're self-medicating, so right. they need that. So those are the people we don't want to keep in custody because we say you have a $500 bond, which technically means 10%, $50, and they don't even have the $50 support. Right. That's who we want to keep out, but we have the ability now to do that. Um, but what Ron is saying that is the secondary portion to this, this person who has three or four grams of heroin that they're using, not dealing, using. Right. When they're in the system, they stay in the system because maybe their criminal history keeps them in there, but they're doing his programming. Right. And this is the thing I want to say. Our jail is an example to what everybody should do. And what we really want people to add into this language. Put this programming in jails so that people can do treatment while they're in there, but then have a mechanism in here where that's reviewed again by the judge and with the state's attorney's office to release that person to see how they're going to do when they're in the public. Okay. Let's get them the treatment. Let's give them the opportunity to see what they're going to do in society. And uh, Ron is really big in regards to all of this. And let's see if we can stop them from continuing down this path of criminality by just putting them right back in jail or prison. That's what we don't want Here's to do. Here's the other safety net that needs to be in there. Guess who's in recovery pot? 
the majority of the offenders, multiple time DUI Correct. offenders, and retail thefts. Mm -hmm. So the reason why retail thefts end up in there is just like Jamie said, many of them are addicted to something, typically heroin. And now finally, they're getting treatment while in custody. So what's gonna happen if those people are diverted from our jail and don't get that treatment, they're and to the result is go right back out and reoffend. Sure. Yeah, that's sure. what's going to happen. So there needs to be, I don't care if it's not in custody, mm -hmm. but a mandated referral uh, reference in this bill to continued addiction support or counseling um, after that initial arrest. Yes, I get innocent until proven guilty, and that's really what this law is striving for when it comes to mm -hmm. keeping people uh, out until their trial occurs. However, there are so many people who are offending because we're just not providing them proper support in the community. So this, so this cash bill portion mm -hmm. is, my words, is merely just not well thought out, basically, in I, the bill. Is, is, that, is that a fair assessment? It's just I not... I think what it is is that there are so many nuances okay. in our job that we know about, and we read this, and we panic, and we think this is terrible. When they wrote it, I, I'm trying to look at it from the perspective of the people who wrote it. They right. just don't know how we actually do it because they're not prosecutors. They're not police officers. Right. They're writing it with this, what I believe is an altruistic desire to yeah, really fix, yeah, to really fix a bad system. Right. But they're doing it in a way that has these unintended consequences that we know because we're in the thick of it every day. What's the benefit of having a cash bail system? So, well, not to speak, not to speak no. good on what people don't like, but I mean, this right. is reality. What, what, what benefits are there? I really don't. So the biggest benefit is it funds our court system. I mean, that's essentially it. But if you think about it, a person who's arrested and they post a thousand dollars, ten percent of it, no matter what, they, we dismiss the charges, they're found, found right. not guilty. Ten percent stays in the court system, and it funds a system that we've been using because, frankly, our county doesn't fund it in the way that it should or could. So that's the one benefit. The detriment to it is what's great because, again, we put this money on because we think the idea is that they're going to come back because they don't want to lose their money. Right. We have seen that that doesn't actually mean anything because yeah. people don't come in for a variety of reasons. Sometimes people just forget. Sometimes mm -hmm. people are like, nope, I'm never coming back. But if they lose their money, we're just perpetuating a cycle. Right. If we need to keep somebody in because they're a danger to the community, then we just keep that person in. As Ron said, sometimes we keep people in because they're a danger, they get treatment, and then we can release them at that point. I don't see any purpose of saying $500 is the reason why you stay in. Yeah. Cash bail does give that autonomy to judges mm -hmm. to hold somebody. You know, they, they place uh, incredibly high bonds, $2 million, on somebody who is arrested for an attempted murder or a murder or a shooting because they're a danger to the public. Um, but then you do have the off-balance of people with that criminal history in the background, or the retail theft example, which I love that you give. You know, your bond is 500 bucks. You got to pay 50 to get out. You can't even afford that. Right. So the other problem is the autonomy. Mm -hmm. Is that not every judge is going to assess an appropriate bond? So that's why we're fans of the cashless bail system because it's either you're in, you're out, and here's number three. I don't know if you're ready to segue yet, or you go on electronic monitoring. That's a great, you know what, the time is now 8.29 a.m. You're listening to Good Morning Aurora, the second largest city's first daily news podcast. We are here with uh, State of State's Attorney Jamie Moster and Sheriff Ron Hain. You know what, we got a lot. Good segue, let's put a pause on that. Damn, electronic monitoring. Um, because that's a, uh, that's a great 
way to strengthen resources within departments, flesh out technology, and also stop recidivism, hopefully, <clears throat> intervention when we can. Right. Because when you have electronic monitoring, you're dealing with a probation officer. Well, no. yeah, here you're dealing with. Can I answer for once? Yes, you can. Sorry. Oh man. Yeah, we're problem is electronic monitoring thing. So the sheriff's office took over. I think we talked about it on mm -hmm. the show before. We took over electronic monitoring. I should say we rebuilt it uh, in 2019. So okay. King County defunded the program in 2018 when it was run by the Court Services Division. It was seven hundred fifty thousand dollars annually to operate electronic monitoring. So of course, when you take that program away, where does everybody go? They have to go back into custody. Right. right. They have to go back into jail. So it costs us, when I say us, taxpayers and Kane, 75 to 85 bucks a day, depending on the needs of the individual, to keep them in custody, right? It costs me $3.95 a day to lease the ankle bracelet that goes on that individual to release them into the community, to be back with their family, to put them to work, to put them through education, whatever they need to get laid back up and be productive in the community, okay? So what is more beneficial? Locking somebody in a cage for average 80 bucks a day or get them back out through our diversion team and through our electronic monitoring team to go back to work and again, be at home and engage with their children? Well, certainly, certainly, certainly the electronic monitoring is right. So, People say, well, heck, that was $750,000 that you have to take on now, Sheriff. And I say, no, if they're not in my custody, then I'm saving money within my jail food bu budget, my, my medical budget, my equipment budget, my salaries. So I am using, right now, we're currently funding the entire program through the jail food budget. Because again, if I'm not paying to feed them, I can use that to, uh, to put them back out on the streets. Right. So, all of that said, we're actually saving, and we estimated over the course of the first year, if we were running at full capacity, which we're not yet, court services, they handled 80 to 120 people a day. Uh, right now, we have 35 as of today, and we keep pressing <laughs> the courts <laughs> to, to help us bolster this program. But uh, yeah, we're, uh, we have the capacity to get back to that point, and we estimated if we are running at full capacity, we actually save the county almost a million dollars annually by keeping 80 to 120 people out of our, our jail. Question from the audience, is that $3.95 a day or $395? $3.95. That's a very good question. Yes. Did I just say 395? You, you said, yeah, you, you, and you left it like that. I was like, what the Thank you. Shouts out. I mean, we got some great listeners. Hang on. <laughs> sometimes if people let, you know, me speak first, that would have been clear. <laughs> good shot. Thank you. You're going to find me banter quite a bit. A okay. All right. Yeah, this is the first time I've had. You've had, you've been on the show twice. Yes. Jared, you've been on only once before we were doing videos. So mm -hmm. we're glad to have you guys both on at the same time. I've been in office two months. I've been office two years and twice, twice. You this is our first campaign. Right, this yes. is campaign time. Um, all right, so that's that's cash bail, and we will we'll, we'll filter and have a couple of more um, questions. Yeah, she's got a wow. She's I do have she's one alarming point. Thing sure. for you yes, here, here's another alarming thing. So I'm a Data? huge oh, yeah. fan of electronic monitoring and GPS, especially because I came from the domestic violence world, where part of what we did is when a domestic abuser was released, we put that bracelet on them. Then there would be a protected zone over where the victim lives, where the victim works. So the victim could live and go to work and not fear that the abuser is following her because of this. Because it'll, it'll go off right. once they breach that 
Yes. Under this law, what happens if they cut it off? Well, they're monitoring 40, it 48 hours. This is what this law says. The law says that if you escape electronic monitoring, you cut your bracelet, and it is literally cutting your bracelet, mm -hmm. you have 48 hours before we can charge you with the crime of escape. Now, that's not a provision now, correct? Correct. Okay. If you cut your bracelet off, you've just committed the felony offense of escape, which means we can charge you with that. We're going out. I'm sorry, you're going out. I'm sitting in my office still. He's going out and he's arresting that person because now they are doing something. Why would you cut your bracelet? You would cut your bracelet because you're going to do something. So think about a domestic because it's itchy. <laughs> a domestic violence victim now has 48 hours where we don't know where this person is. The community doesn't know where this person is because they've, they've escaped. <laughs> this law says we cannot charge you for 48 hours. You Why did they come make back. such a change? I don't know. That's a fantastic question. Why are we giving you 48 hours to come back? Or more importantly, what are you doing during that 48 hour time sure, period? Yeah. Are how you much, sitting outside the victim's home? How much crime can you commit in 47 hours and 59 minutes? You know, oh, it's, yeah, it's, right. it's open range. Yeah. It's a lot. Um, if this person didn't have a prior history of domestic and they were given this electronic home monitoring and now they've cut their bracelet and are now a flight, they're a threat now, um, I would think that that would make that penalty harder and would eliminate the ability for people to do that and have runaway time. Mm -hmm. So is that a blow that a stringent policy was now made lax? Yes. Because what really then is the penalty for doing that? He sure. comes that defendant comes back to Ron and says, I'm so sorry, can you put the bracelet back on? <clears throat> right. Why? I mean that those are the questions that we want to sit down and talk to them about because for us that's a danger to our community, and that's a danger to the victims that I want to protect, that Ron wants to protect. Uh, so that's electronic home monitoring and cash bail. Um, I would like to talk about collective bargaining. Is that a, can we do that? Sure. For the record, what is collective bargaining for those that don't know? Sure. I have five. <laughs> I have five different collective bargaining units at the sheriff's office. So of course it's unionized employees. Is simply what it is. Okay. Collective bargaining agreement is what they arrange with management for working conditions. So salary, wages, and I think that this bill is really trying to limit the disciplinary angles that are included in the in the collective bargaining agreement. Because again, this bill wants to structure discipline under the state and remove it from the actual management. What's wrong with that? So I don't necessarily completely object to the idea of citizen review boards. Those citizen review boards absolutely must be well-trained, well-qualified, and have a good working knowledge of the law and a good working knowledge of public safety. I totally agree with you. So the, what this bill represents is, again, taking that disciplinary discretion away from the law enforcement agency and placing it under the state. And really it's a it's an attempt to, not even an attempt, it's an act to either certify, which happens right after the police academy, law enforcement officers are certified and you gotta take the test and you get your certificate. Be in the Illinois State Police. Uh, yes, well the Illinois Law Enforcement Training and Standards Board okay. structures all of that. And that's who is going to structure this new police review board as we read it 
that, that works in every region of the state. So they want this police review board to have the ability to go ahead and either certify, allow the certification to continue, suspend the certification, cancel the certification, postpone the certification. There's a bunch of different terminology in there uh, in regards to what they can and can't do to, to disable uh, the professional life of a police officer. So that is why the CDAs were, were discussed in this bill. It's basically removing that, that piece of power and putting it under the state. What's the motivation, do you think, behind that? Again, is that just, is was it just an idea that they thought was great, which is actually wrong, or was that a concerted effort to try to throw a monkey wrench into the law enforcement system. So thinking altruistically, as you said, I think they just want to build. Yes, <laughs> we, we just hope it's altruistic. That's all we hope. That they just want to structure an objective committee, if you will, to again decertify law enforcement officers should that need to happen. However, there is just not enough structure around who is going to be sitting on those review boards. Um, I, I think that is going to be where the subjectivity comes into to question. And um, you know, as, as we parlay into complaints against officers, which is the one I get the most heated about, um, when, when you read that part of this bill, I have 20-year police officers who are talking about retiring now, who wanted to serve another five, 10 years. I have new police officers who are going, well, Indiana's right there, Wisconsin's right there, Maybe I'll just leave here and go work in a state that's not going to pass a bill like this. And recruitment, I mean, we're, we're creating an environment and setting a tone because we weren't at the table on this bill where people are not going to want to be police officers in this state. How can that, you know what, this is, hold on. This is a lot of fun. <laughs> this is a lot of fun. We'll briefly say, how can that be? What? Why would a person not want to be a police officer? Why would can we talk about the? This is going to segue into the complaints against law enforcement officers section. Of the no, I, I. We'll just let it say. <laughs> All right, fine. I'm sorry, Chris. It's <laughs> one big spider web. No, it is. It is. It is. Um, okay, let's. Uh, so let's go into the. Now we. So for the record, though, collective bargaining. Still, if this bill is passed, collective bargaining is still in the hands of police unions. Is that? Yes. yes. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So my idea is the reason right. why they wanted to do this is they wanted bad cops just to not be able to get their jobs back. That I think is the altruistic thing behind this because unions could fight. If a bad officer does something, a union could fight to keep that person have that officer have their job back. And that has happened. Oh yeah, a lot. They it's incredibly difficult to one place or another is. department. Yeah. yeah. Correct. And and to that end, I agree, and I think to that end, most police officers agree that they don't want bad cops to get their jobs back. And unfortunately, it has happened. But again, because of the way everything was written in the first bill. So this is here because this is the current bill. The first one that was put out was 611 pages. This is 764 pages, and we keep reading all of this stuff, and I have notes about it. They changed it from the first bill to this bill, and they took out the some of that bad language, but they added in a task force now that's going to be looking at collective bargaining with the idea that, again, we're trying to make and sure... And qualified immunity. And qualified immunity. We're trying to make sure that the bad cops don't get their, good, their jobs back, but leaving it in the hands of still making sure that we have police officers or people who want to be police officers. Um, 
Can I make one quick connection? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yes. So a lot of people talk about, well, licensing of police officers mm -hmm. should happen. I want to be clear that certification is just really semantics for licensing. So we can be decertified, we can you know, be terminated uh, currently, but you know, as people keep talking about, we need to add licensing in there. Really, that is the certification that exists in Illinois right now. Correct. All right, um, man, the rabbit holes are just, right? I'm going to follow that one. Like, oh, sure. All right, let's get back to what we're talking about. Um, we're segueing into complaints. Into complaints right. against police officers. Yes. Okay. So I gotta take a deep breath on that one. So um, I, I don't get too emotional. If you guys are just joining us, it's 8:42 a.m. Uh, you're listening to Good Morning Aurora, second largest city's first daily news podcast, and we are joined by Sheriff Ron Hain and State's Attorney Jamie Mosser, uh, discussing police reform and HB 3653. Okay. So currently, and going forward for the future, modern law enforcement is incredibly well trained and incredibly transparent. At the Sheriff's Office, we are so proud of our new body camera program that we just launched and are still in the process of rollout because it actually takes quite a bit of time to, to upfit and train everybody in the usage. So when it comes to making a complaint against an officer, you can go right to our website, you can fill out a form, you can call us 24-7 to initiate the process. We have a whole division called the Office of Professional Standards that investigates these complaints and we have our union process where we bring these complaints against the officer after the investigation and a disciplinary process and progressive discipline. Now is this different? You are the um, sheriff's department. Is the procedure different than the police department? No. Okay. So large departments like Aurora Police Department follow the exact same process. Okay. 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 So under this bill, it basically that unit still has to exist because we have to do the investigation, prepare reports, and forward said reports and all evidence to that independent review board. Right. Okay? So now we need to, to receive a, a qualified complaint. We need the complainant's name. We need the date and time of the incident. And we do ask for a signature, also known as a sworn affidavit, mm -hmm. of the complaining person. Potentially, if they make false allegations, we could charge them with the crime. Right. For a lie. Sure. Okay? Under this bill, the complaints can be anonymous, no sworn affidavit is needed, and the complaint stays in the officer's file for their career, substantiated or not. Okay? Substantiated or not. Now, follow me here. Let's say, and I have to use the estranged spouse example, because that is one of the common complaints that we get. Uh, it is from somebody's ex-lover right. uh, about one of our deputies or, or corrections officers. Now that person doesn't have to give their name. They can call every week for two months and develop a pattern. Just make up any sort of complaint that they like um, about this officer. He pulled me over and yelled at me and said obscene language and right. used racial slurs. Right. And do this for a month straight. Now they've developed this pattern that can go to this uh, the independent review board and potentially decertify this individual because what else do they have to rely on? Oh, and look, none of those incidents were caught on your your mandated body camera officer, so apparently you didn't even have that on. Right. There's a class three felony. So not only is he decertified, but he, he he's uh, charged with a class three felony. Right. Yes. There would still be a judge over this procedure looking at these bogus claims, correct? So my understanding is that it would be on our office to investigate and, and provide all original reports from the anonymous complainant to that independent review board. Now that independent review board, that's why I said it needs to have a whole lot of credibility wrapped around it, can decertify that officer, but that officer can appeal. 
now he has to appeal it to the same review board. <laughs> so. And they can do an emergency decertification. So mm -hmm. all of a sudden, this police officer is out of a job. Yeah. Look at these complaints that we received for eight weeks straight. We have to do an emergency suspension. One would hope that the police union would be backing that officer and going to bat for him. Though, right? Ah, it's been removed from the CBAs. That's what's the CBA? The collective bargaining agreement. So that's what we were originally talking about: is that they're taking they're in the beginning they were trying to take that away from the collective bargaining, ah. so that unions then wouldn't have the ability to fight for the police officers. Ah uh -huh. okay. okay. So when you put all that together, that's why we're losing great police officers. So a person is making these complaints. Uh, the process now is that they have to be a sworn affidavit under which, if it's if you're lying, you are subject to the penalty of the law. Perjury. Per, yeah, perjury. So under this bill, if signed into law, a person can just make complaints without having to do that legal, that rigorous legal work beforehand. They can make their complaints, which stay forever. Um, it's not that rigorous, by the way. Yeah. To make a complaint, it's very, very easy. Oh, right, 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 right. Um, Paperwork increases, the ability to have your uh, professional career dampened by senseless, you know, charges mm -hmm. uh, increases. What in the world was the, do you speculate, was the reason for adding that and going away with the system as it is now? So I'd like to jump in on this one. So yesterday I got a call from a friend, and it's a friend that I met during the campaign. And he was questioning why I was opposing that. Mm -hmm. Now, he has a criminal history. Mm -hmm. And in that criminal history, he has been found not guilty at trial. Cases have been dismissed against him. And it's still being used against him. Mm -hmm. And I said, that's one of the reasons why we need to do this system better than what they're proposing. So he had the benefit of going through the court of, a court of law, and a judge found him not guilty of a case. But it's still on his criminal history, and people are still saying, you did this crime, but he was found not guilty of it. When you go through all of this and you have anonymous complaints, first of all, how do you investigate an anonymous complaint? I want to go back to Ron's example where somebody's calling and saying this person is swearing at me and using racial, racial slurs. Sorry, I could not get that out for the life of me. You should. The time is now 8.48 a.m. Sauciness. So there's not a way to do that. From my perspective, if there's an officer who's using bad language or racially charged language, I, don't, I want that officer punished, but we can't investigate it now. So nothing really happens with it because there's no facts behind everything. So there's two things. One, somebody could be lying. The second thing is how do we really investigate the bad when it happens? The other part of this is when you make a complaint against somebody, you should be doing that under a sworn statement. It's the same way that every police officer who files a complaint against a person who's arrested has to swear to that, because if that police officer is lying, that police officer gets in trouble. We're creating two different standards. We can anonymously and we can, without swearing to it, say a police officer did something wrong. Then you don't get in trouble when you're lying. But police officer, if you're lying, you do get in trouble. Why are we making two standards? If you are alleging a complaint against somebody, it should be the same way across the board, whether or not you wear a shield or you don't. What is the, uh, what's the cost as it stands now for a person to make a complaint and get an affidavit, affidavit sworn and all that? You say cost? Yeah. Zero dollars. Yeah. It doesn't cost anything. It doesn't cost anything. Oh, okay. Then it shouldn't. 
But we need to have some baseline information and we need to have a complainant to do a proper investigation. And, and the most damaging part, again, is the retention of the complaint regardless of foundation for the entire career of the officer. As it stands now, how long do complaints against an officer remain? Substantiated or not? Unsubstantiated. Unsubstantiated does not go on the file. Substantiated. Depends on the type of infraction. So it could stay in the file for a year, it could stay for the entire career. But again, in the most egregious violations, uh, we move for uh, severe discipline or termination, certainly. Okay. Have there been cases in recent memory where a person made a complaint against an officer that was in, through the affidavit system as it stands now, that was entirely bogus and unfounded? Oh, once a month. Okay. All right. Um, that's interesting. And, uh, and of course, the jilted lover complaint. Mm -hmm. Right. Once every other month. Right. So again, one of the ways to change this language, because that's really what we're talking about. So you so, don't want the you, you don't want this removed from the the language to change. Yes. Yes, because one of the concerns is people are afraid to file a legitimate complaint against the police officer because they're afraid of retaliation because that has happened with bad cops. Mm -hmm. So there's a way to put in language that protects the identity of that person so that the investigation is able to go through to substantiate or to unsubstantiate something. So again, there's, there's ways to do this in the right way so that again, we can investigate the bad cops without hurting the good cops. Yeah, we can certainly meet in the middle on this one. I mean, get rid of the swan part, get rid of the signature line. Okay, I'll meet you in the middle there. But again, we need some information and we need the ability to remove that unsubstantiated complaint from an officer's file. Because there has to be a reason behind it. In criminal law, if I call a witness to a stand, there's certain things about their credibility that can come in. If you have a prior felony conviction or if you have a conviction for lying, you know, there are reasons why we can bring in information, but there's limits within the law. For a crime itself, we can't get in anything that's older than 10 years. So why then do we have something that stays in a police officer's file forever if the law doesn't even consider anything that's older than 10 years? You know, I listen to this and I think about the, I think about the procedure and I think about law enforcement and I think to myself, it doesn't sound outlandish to have five years, 10 years substantiated claims or actions on an officer's record that if he does something else egregious, the court could look at for prosecution. Mm -hmm. It's called progressive discipline. Um, I do think it's outlandish that unsubstantiated claims from anonymous folks would remain on an officer's. But yeah, I just don't see how that would stop me from being a law enforcement officer if I was so if I wanted to be one. This is an incredibly noble profession that requires a great deal of courage and discipline to maintain even into a five-year career. That's why I bring it up. That's why I bring it up. Your career. When you look at an officer who served for 10, look, I'm going to speak personally. I've, I've done this for 23 years now. I sincerely love the job, love the profession, love who I stand for throughout Kane County. But internally, and for my family, I am looking down at the light at the end of the tunnel that says I can retire. 
with a pension in, well, I could retire now, but I won't be able to draw until I'm 50. In five years, when I turn 50 years old, I'll be able to retire and enjoy my life after all the investment that I've put in sure. to this job. It is daunting when you're a 5, 10, 15-year police officer to go at any point. I can become decertified. I can be charged with a class three felony. I could lose everything that I go out every day, put on this uniform and work for, lose all of my pension, lose all of my credibility and integrity just because of an anonymous, unfounded complaint. Yeah, you're looking at your career and saying you'll never make it to 20 years. Sure, so yeah. why do it? Why, so then, why risk my life every day? Put that in the context of what we, and I'm talking about all of society, have done to create the situation that we're in. The lawmakers created this war on drugs. I want you to think about when all of this was passed a long time ago, when the drugs were starting here, cocaine, and the difference between powder cocaine and crack cocaine, and sure. we, we created these laws. We made this unworkable environment, and we told police officers, go out and arrest people. And that's exactly what they did. We had great police officers that did exactly what they were supposed to do, and then we had bad police officers. But we gave them the laws. And then we started to take money away from social services. We weren't giving money to put people into treatment. We took away mental health services. Our mental health services here in Illinois, for the most part, are a joke because we don't have what we should have for people. But we tell police officers, you continue to do your job. You continue to arrest people because these are crimes. Then we changed some of the laws. We figured out that, yes, we were absolutely racially profiling people of color because they were using crack as in the rocks versus powder cocaine. Right. So we changed that. Great. But you know what we kept doing? We kept taking money away from social services mm -hmm. and we kept saying, you know what, police officers, you deal with this problem. And then here's where we are because we took money away from where we should have put money and we put all the burden on police officers. Two bipartisan issues created the issue where we stand today over the 80s and 90s, one was a war on drugs by Ronald Reagan, and you saw the prison rates escalate through the roof. I think it was 400% increase in mm -hmm. prison rates between 85 and 1990. The second thing that created it was Bill Clinton's cop grant, cops grant. Do you remember that from the 90s? That's what hired me. I was like nine. But the whole idea. <laughs> The whole idea was that nah, we, got right. this, we got this war on drugs. Look at all these arrest sure, rates going up. Sure. We got so much crime going. Sure. Look at these. Look at this gang crime activity, guns, shootings, mm -hmm. etc. Let's flood the streets with cops. Let's put right. all these boots on the ground. And when I went to the academy in the '90s, it was all about aggressiveness, putting away those bad guys, go get them attitude. When I came out and I was a young deputy at uh, my different sheriff's office, that was the whole theme of the administration I worked under: is go get those bad guys. And then I finally stopped one day and I turned around and, looked, and I went, wait a second, all the bad guys are in the low-income areas. And who lives in low-income areas but 60% black, 30% Hispanic, and a very small percent white, less than 10% white, lives in America. That's a national statistic. So we've been training cops for decades plus to go get those bad guys who are the minority community and have created now what we see, well, heck, since 2000, really, all the way to 2020, this antagonistic relationship between the police and minority communities. But who really created the environment that we're in? The government. And I love her point. Get back to funding social services. Get back to drafting the right kind of legislation. And refocus law enforcement administration to approach the community in a different fashion. And let's be clear, that's not defund the police. 
No, of course not. Yeah, right, 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 right. Because that's, that's this whole movement right now. And when you really ask somebody, what does defund the police mean? What we're looking to do is actually start to work together as a community again. Create laws that put money where it should be. We need police officers because you know what? Social workers, counselors, they don't want to respond to these dangerous situations. You know what police officers don't want to respond to? Situations where a person is having a mental health episode or something that's happening because they've taken too many drugs or bad drugs. We created this system and now we're creating laws that are trying, trying to undo some of that but not in the right way because we're, we're not working together again. I want to work with the sheriff. I want to work with the community. So let's do that and create those laws. Y'all want to work a little more in Aurora with this? <laughs> <laughs> we always want to work with the uh, We just get to come up I don't. All right, so here's the thing. Um, uh, just for a quick pause, which of the two at the moment is worse? The ending of cash bail or the complaint system against officers? The complaint, well, so ending cash bail is great. The way in which they've written it is bad. That's sure, sure. The way in sure. which they have written this ability to complain against police officers is bad. There's no good in that, appears. You guys, there's no... There's a way to write it that makes it good. Okay. Yeah. Now, I, I, I do want to say that you're a lawyer. Yes. So you're fluent in legalese. Yes. A lot of people are not, you know? So, so, so they, they, they hear you and your ability to describe the nuances and language and what it would mean as applicable by law. Mm -hmm. And they don't get that. I think one of the things that the community has a problem with is that they look and they see the ending of chokeholds. Mm -hmm. They see more access to mental health. They see the ability for people to get a couple more calls in jail or whatever. They see that and then they hear you guys, or other, not you guys, they, they hear it's anti-cop. And they think, how can good things be anti-cop? And that's why we've been screaming from the rooftops. And right. There are so many good things in this bill. And, and the altruistic fashion of the word of the day of what this bill is trying to accomplish are all great. Right. However, there are so many components that are missing, that are, I'll use your phrase early on in the show, not well thought out. Uh, but we really are just desperate to shout from the rooftops, to get at the table, to help everyone iron this out and work together. I defer to law enforcement when it comes to law enforcement issues. Mm -hmm. I've never worn the badge before. I don't know what it's like to do that job. I believe that if you're going to get facts, you're going to talk about uh, police reform and law enforcement, you should be talking with them. Um, Do the peak, uh, the folks who wrote this bill, what was the process like working with them or did it exist at all? So, obviously, I just took office, so I didn't get to. Right. Have this has been a long time with the Correct. And so, um, I want to meet them. So, um, I think it's Senator Sims and Representative, Representative Slaughter, and I could be mistaking this Senator and Representative. Yeah. So, I do think that they had a great idea with this, and this is my problem with it. It's, it's 764 pages. That chokehold. Yes. But <laughs> why? How about let's have House Bill One that removes chokeholds. Great. You're going to hear us saying that's fantastic. How about we have House Bill Two that deals with pretrial release? How about we have House Bill Three that deals with this? That's the problem. We have two sides arguing things because it's they're 
they're trying to create the problem. We have the, this is anti-cop, who's not looking at the reform. Then we have this is pro-reform, who's not looking at the danger to the community, because it's so easy to say this tagline. What we're trying to do, and it seems like we're trying to get into the weeds of this, but it's only because we see it on a day-to-day -day basis. I think this is important enough to get into the weeds on. It, it, it seems, it's, yeah. Exactly. But can, it, but can that's you jam a, all those separate bills through in less than a week in a lame duck session, though? Right. Apparently you can, right? Yes. So, the, so that's the problem. Every, both that's sides right. are right. Both yeah. sides are right. Great way to say it. So let's just get to the table and now get it right. Okay. Because again, what they did was they put it out there. Now we have criminal justice reform, and congratulations to both of them. Like I'm excited about this. Bron's excited about this. We're ready for it. Great. But you got to fix that really bad language that we've talked about. And we're not saying. I want to be really clear too that we're not saying that they're not listening to us mm -hmm. now. Um, we just had a call with, with two great new state representatives yesterday. I've been in conversations with one of our senators um, and uh, another state rep that uh, has a forthcoming conversation with us. So now that they are talking and our law enforcement and state's attorney associations have been part of discussions like the broad overview of criminal justice reform earlier in 2020. However, when it came down to the real preparation of this bill and the nuts and the bolts, both associations were pounding at the door saying, let us in, come on, we need, to, we need to make sure this gets right before it gets on the House floor and the Senate floor, and they were locked out of the room. Um, all right, here's a couple of flash, we're going to do the, the quick session series, right? Remember like, uh, yes. this, what show was that? Did I miss that? Anyway, um, does this bill make it easier for criminals to get away with crime? No, to get away with crime, no. Like, yes. How silly that question was. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm right, right? So, criminals get away with crime. So I, I, will say, I will say this. They removed a law. I shouldn't say removed it. So the law of resisting or obstructing a police officer now has to have a predicating offense. That's where I was. Okay, right. So I'll give you this example. An officer makes a traffic stop, and this happens quite a bit here in Aurora uh, when it comes to gang crime activity. Officer makes a traffic stop. The driver will stay in the car. Everybody else jumps off and takes takes off jumps right. out, takes off running. Right. Probably two of the three of them have guns on them. Yeah. Okay. But the officer doesn't know that at the time. Why is he chasing those people? Well, that's resisting and obstructing a peace officer because during a traffic stop, a peace officer is the only one that can order you in or out of a car. So these people immediately in that position are again resisting sure. that officer. Sure. He technically can't chase them because he doesn't have a crime to chase them for. So what? What that means is that, so you're pulling over a guy. You can't do that unless you have a reason to ascertain what he was going to do. Is, is that? You can make the traffic stop okay. for, the, for an Illinois vehicle code violation. Right. But many times, because we have proactive police officers in Aurora and proactive deputies that work in the community, well, the guy they're out You can't chase them. Technically not, because okay. you were stopping that car for a traffic infraction. Now, here's you, what, you don't have a predicating offense to that resistant. You just see people taking off and running. Now, Sheriff, this is for all of you people out there. The time is now 9.05. Sheriff, are you telling me that a car known gang members or a gang member owned car, this vehicle has been reported many times, our officers have pulled this guy over, we know who this is. Are you telling me that he gets pulled over, shots fired in the area, 
dark gray Honda. We got the dark gray Honda. Pull over. The guys get out. Are you telling me, Sheriff, that when this bill is passed, they will not be chasing these guys? What it does is it actually is counterintuitive to the bill because you're going to have officers who are altruistically doing their job, and they're going to have to add crimes to justify a crime if you follow according to the bill. According, according to, the bill. to the bill. Okay. Because again, right. simply, I love that scenario you just portrayed. Again, if they jumped out and started running, okay, you had the crime of resisting a peace officer. Give chase, and hopefully you catch that guy, and maybe he's got the gun on him, and you just Perfect. solved a shame. Right. right. But under that scenario you just laid out, under this new law, no, you have to wave goodbye. Okay. So let's say you. So you know what? Forget that. I'm not waving goodbye. I joined this department for a reason, mm -hmm. and I'm going to chase this member of the whatever. I chase him, he's got the gun. What happens now since I violated that? It, well, do I, am I getting locked up for that as an officer? Is the judge going to ask me, why did you chase this guy? He didn't know that he, how did you know he was a gay member? Right? Is that what happens next? Courts do not allow for bootstrapping. So basically you can't say, well, I gave chase and then I did find a gun. Everything's okay, right? No, you have to have that predicating offense before you can arrest somebody for a crime. If this bill is signed. If this bill is signed. Again, it's one of those things that we understand. If you think about it this way, you're arrested for resisting a peace officer, but there's no other charge. From a layman's perspective, yeah, that I don't understand it either from that. There's a way to write this law that does what it's intended to do, which is not just to arrest a bunch of people of color. Because we have seen that happen. There's no question about it. His jail is filled with people of color when that doesn't match our population. Our population does not have, what do you have in your jail? So, oh, you're going to let me go off on that. There's more black people, people in the jail than in Sugar Grove or uh, St. Charles. The black Saint population Charles. in Kane County, whole Kane County is 6%. Right. Our average black population inside the jail is 37%, as high as 46% in my two years. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll let you go. No, you're right. But what I, what I love about this article is it puts all kinds of training in there, like racial sensitivity training, training towards mental health, training towards de-escalation, um, CIT training. You're just distracted. What's CIT? Critical Pro Incident Training. Crisis Intervention. Crisis Intervention Training. <laughs> 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 I'm bad with that. This is why I need to let you answer sometimes. That's, that's fine. Um, that's why I took that budget over, by the way. The yes, CIT budget. I know, which I'm okay with. <laughs> okay, so we've got an increase in training, but we're allowing... Okay, we've got an increase in training, but we are allowing... Uh, we're not having officers give chase in that scenario. Mm -hmm. We've had an increase in training, but we are allowing anonymous complaints against officers. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got an increase in training, but we're taking away cash bail. Mm -hmm. Besides those, from a law enforcement perspective, what could be worse in this bill? What else is there? I got a good one. So, mm -hmm. When you're arrested and you go to bond court very next day, because you have to go to bond court within 48 hours, it's usually the very next day. Sometimes if you get arrested on a Friday though, you ain't going till Monday. Oh no, you're going Saturday. Oh, they got a weekend judge? Oh, yes, oh. absolutely. We have I didn't know that. That's just what I heard yes. from you people in the comments. <laughs> <laughs> we do. We have it every day. We have it on Christmas. And two times a day. Yeah, two times a day. We have it in the morning and we have it in the afternoon. So you're, you're going to bond court pretty quickly. So the way the law is written now, you, defendant, 
have the right to bring witnesses as to why you should be released. Not that the crime didn't happen, but you have a place to go. You're not in danger. We're going to get you to treatment. We're going to do whatever. You have that right. Fantastic. That's exactly what you should have. Correct. They have changed the law to say that if the defendant says that by clear and convincing evidence that he or she would be materially prejudiced if the complaining witness, that's the victim of the crime, if the complaining, that the complaining witness has to come to bond court. So I want you to think about this. Victim sexually assaulted, goes to the hospital, a rape kit is done that evening, police are called, police do an investigation, police identify suspect, arrest suspect, charge that person with the felony offense of rape. That person is brought to bond call the very next day. That person says, I have to have the victim here because it would materially prejudice me as to whether or not I can be released if that victim isn't there. The judge can then compel that it means mandate that victim has to come to bond court one day, two days after the incident happened. And this is a, that type of arrest and crime is more common than most people realize Correct. and, and seen in our bond calls. What benefit would the perp have? The, the victim is obviously not going to speak good of this person. What is the... I don't know. So again, let's say the victim wanted to come to bond court and say whatever the victim wanted to say. Fine. Why are we compelling a victim of a crime to come to court one or two days after the incident happens? We're trying to think objectively about this first, just like you're doing right now. I can see it in your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> like, why is it so quiet? Right? What, what is, <laughs> what Speechless, is that's what I did. And, right. and I can't find right, because it's, to this. It's not whether or not the crime occurred, it's whether or not the person should be released. A judge can still hear all that mm -hmm. and say that this perp is not being let out of jail. Correct. The judge. It, I, this is something that I've, this is, you know, for my layman's terms, I've wanted to understand this with the whole bill. A judge is still able, even if it was signed into law, yes. a judge can look at this and say, I'm supposed to let this, nah. Right. A judge can say no. A judge can say no to all of this, even if the bill is signed. Well, you mean for the victim part or holding somebody? Holding. So no, because if, if okay. a judge cannot hold somebody if the law doesn't allow the judge to do okay. so. Okay, all right. And that's the bottom line, is that what this is doing is tying the judge's hands in some circumstances. And the reason why is because unfortunately we have people who are held pre-trial in cases that when you really look at it, maybe they shouldn't have been held pre-trial, or maybe they were held just because they didn't have the 50 bucks to bond out. Right. So again, it's really trying to eliminate a long-term problem that we've had. It's just doing it. In a in way that could have really bad unintended consequences. So again, great idea. I think we're consistent in that message. Great idea for criminal justice reform, but let's have the language changed to make it do what it's intended to do. So, we're starting to sound like a broken record. We are. <laughs> well, that's what it takes, yeah. though, right? That's yeah. what it takes, because people are sounding like broken records. Mm -hmm. I was listening to broken records, and you just answered the record for me. So, people were saying things that you, I just heard from you was not the case. Right. So this is, this is good. And Curtis, this is, this is what happened because I <laughs> jumped on um, Senator Villa and Representative Hernandez put out a um, Facebook Live event, and that's where 
you saw me posting. And first of all, I did it in a very unprofessional way. And I've apologized to Senator Via and Representative. There was like 740 this. comments. Oh I don't gosh. even know. They were just, it was and, like hotcakes. And then there's, <laughs> then there's me too. And I'm doing yeah. it. And I've apologized to them. And I owe it to the representative and the senator too because I need to do it a better way. But this is a one prime example of how not political I am, but how passionate. I am about all this stuff. Yeah. And you know what, Senator Villa and Representative Fernandez are listening to me. And they are listening to the community. But they're also doing it in the backlash of the people who are on opposite extremes, who are saying no or yes. And we need to, again, be right in the middle talking it all through. All right. Uh, I want to talk about the defunding police mm -hmm. specifically part. Now, if I'm not mistaken, there was a part in the bill that said that departments that did not comply. Non-compliance would mean a lack of funds, or taking away of funds, or the limiting of funds. That was about as defundy the policy as you could get with that specific language. But that language was taken out. Correct? So that still exists in there, but it really applies to grant funding from the state. Ah. So hardly any of my budget. I'm trying to think of anything specifically that is funded directly by the state that we depend on on a daily basis. Um, one grant that we use for correctional purposes is, if that went away, I'd lose about $110,000 a year out of a $32 million budget. So, okay. I mean, it's not breaking the bank. I understand the purpose of it. Um, and we're by and large going to comply, and we already are in compliance with the vast majority of what this bill states. So, I mean, it's not a, a tough road for us to haul, but when it comes down to body cameras, and I speak more so on the behalf of sheriffs, you know, south of I-80 and western 39, but you know, they don't have the budgets that law enforcement does here, or the resources in, in northeastern Illinois. And they're really scratching their heads, and their, their county boards are scratching their heads, and their municipality boards are scratching their heads going, how are we going to come up with a body camera program that we can't pay for? So I've been trying to point to you know, funding shares that the state should provide. I think the new cannabis tax, a certain portion of the cannabis tax is allotted directly to law enforcement. We're receiving that now. But King County is a fairly large county. We do have dispensaries. We are gathering the tax. The sheriff's office has only gotten $25,000 from 2020 cannabis tax. Now you go downstate, and you're going to see a much less income. And our body camera lease contract is $170,000 a year. So agencies are going to have to come up with money from the state to be able to make this happen. Including it, prosecutors, by the way, because all of that body cam footage comes to us. And when a case is charged, that's and, not my concern. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we have to store it, and we have to review it. And now we're going to review a lot more. We're already overburdened, our prosecutors. We already have more cases and more work that we have to do, and this is going to create more. So there's more funding. And I, I do want to segue into one other thing about body cams, because this is something I can't believe you didn't mention. Part of what it says in here is that a police officer who goes to a scene and something happens and an arrest is made is not allowed to review his or her body camera footage before writing the police report. I thought we were going to segue into body cameras. Right. right, so this is what I want to give an example. Okay. I, I often, in my jury trials, especially my domestic violence ones, have to explain why a victim of a crime has a different story from the scene to the time of trial. And I want you to think just the trauma on the brain when something bad happens. 
Because that's what our brain does. Our brain protects us. Fight or flight or freeze, and there's a whole new one that's right. in there. And so as a result of all of that, when you first are asking for help in a 911 call, a victim is going to be very limited because it's just, I need help. When an initial police officer comes, the victim gives a little bit more, but is still under the stress. Sure. The detective eventually follows up. There's more information, but you're still, you're healing from everything. Two years later, when this thing goes to trial, you're in a better position to be able to describe stuff. And defense attorneys everywhere are saying, well, these are all different statements. And I say these are not different statements. This is what happens. This is real life. Police officers aren't exempt from that. When they're coming up on a shooting, this is Wait, police officers are human beings? <laughs> yes, they oh, are. Sarah, bill, don't do that. You I'm know on this show, we don't. Come on. <laughs> this bill dehumanizes police officers. A portion, it dehumanizes police a portion officers. of this bill dehumanizes. Yes. Uh, thank you. You're for, welcome. Clarifying, a portion of this bill, as it says, yes. dehumanizes police officers. Okay. Because okay. it doesn't get yeah. yeah. stressful. I mean, I, I've never been to a shooting, but you know what? I would be scared to death. Police officers have to go in there, and despite all of their training, they're still going through all of that. The adrenaline is running. So if a police officer wants to accurately put down in a police report what happened by using the body cam footage after they're calm and they're able to look at it, why would we prevent them from doing so? Okay, so they can perjure themselves. Okay, here's the thing. There appears to be no punishment has not been for officers who delete or destroy body cam footage. Is it possible that that part, mm -hmm. maybe, you know, they tried their very best, could that possibly be the reason behind that? There is punishment for it. Look at what happened with Jason Van Dyke and those other police officers. They lied in their reports, and the only reason why they got caught with that, obviously, is when the footage came out. Chicago Police Department. Yes. Officers, right. Right. So they got charged with those offenses, and it is Joe McMahon, the camp, former King County State's Attorney, who went down to Cook County and held Jason Van Dyke accountable. So that's, I, that's important that's to true. know. But the difference is, they should have looked at their footage, they should have been truthful, but they lied. They lied, no question about it. What this bill is doing is preventing the good officers who do want to accurately report what happened from being able to utilize a tool to do so. And Curtis, you are right. That's what mm -hmm. the intent of the bill is. Correct. To make sure that it gives, by law, police administration and supervisors the authority to lock down that video, control that video. Right. It doesn't give the officer access to it. But it stops there. It doesn't clearly state that the officer can review that video. What it states is, only the supervisor can review it. The officer can't review it until after he writes his report. I'm going to try, you know, I, I, I think in the mind of the people who crafted it, they probably thought, you know what we're going to do? If an officer's good mm -hmm. and he's got nothing to hide, he shouldn't have to, right? If you responded to the call and the suspect was violent and you restrained him and all this, and then you shouldn't have to want to go back but Curtis, if somebody ran in here right now and um, punched all of us, we're going to have three different versions of what happened. Not because we're lying, but because we have three different perspectives of it. True. And something stressful just happened. True. So, again, what we want to do is punish people who lie in right. police reports. Right. But if you have a perspective of what happened, it doesn't mean that you're lying. It's because of what happened. It's because of what the brain does. It's the same argument that I have for victims who are in a traumatic event. Why not let a police officer 
accurately depict what happened by sure. looking at the report because again, all he or she is trying to do is write it down accurately. What you're going to see if this goes through is that police officers are going to write a police report that says see body cam. Yeah. That's all What's wrong with that? Because it puts more work on everybody else because we can't look at a we, the prosecutors, now have to watch hours and hours and hours of it before we're even able to prep anything because we don't have a police report that's used to summarize that we use to do our job in the very beginning. And I tell my right, right, right. Yeah. I did tell my deputies if this becomes law, that's the way we're going, and they're actually pretty excited about that. <laughs> what, see, right again? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, um, I didn't say that to to be joking. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm trying to mirror what the sheriff said when he spoke about law enforcement when he started. He said. The, prof the noble profession of law enforcement. So I, and that's one of the problems that I've had with the criticism of the bill and its anti-communist. I don't believe anybody who really loves their job would be dissuaded by, see my damn body cam, I don't got nothing to, you know what I mean? That's, right. that's how I'm looking at it. But I do know that law, sure, right. law and how it's written does take precedence when you're a professional law enforcement. Mm -hmm. Um, I do believe with this body camera issue, uh, personally, as a citizen, that, well, wait a minute, when they get, when they, they're signed into law, departments have until 2025 to have body cameras. Yes. It does graduate by population. Yes. So. Okay. All right. And I don't know um, the exact steps. I believe that all officers statewide having body cameras would do a lot of good. I really do believe that. We are in Absolutely. agreement with that. I really believe that. It protects both sides. If the language said that by that officers are entitled to look and at and review footage, would you agree with that? Yes. Okay. See that we're getting along with the show. Oh yeah. snap. <laughs> we did talk when we were talking to the state reps, I think it was yesterday, they did clarify that what it meant to state was, right. they can view it, it mm -hmm. just has to be under the control and authority of their supervisor. Correct. Okay. Fine. Spell that out, please. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Again, we're fine with this. There, there are those things, again, so I, I want to, you mentioned this phone call issue, how they're putting in three phone calls in three hours. So you're at the uh, police department, three phone calls in three hours, you're at the jail, or then you go to the jail, three phone calls in three hours. Mm -hmm. This is all coming from an issue that occurred in Chicago. Chicago, where 2% of the people who are um, arrested actually got phone calls. That's a problem. There's no question about it. Our law says that you're supposed to have reasonable access to a telephone to talk to your family or an attorney. This, yes, Again, this is great. Yeah, I don't have, nobody has an issue with this. It just seems to become an arbitrary thing because what they're trying to deal with is an issue in Chicago. Can I tell you that this one and I have fought recently because of the sheer amount of phone calls his inmates get. Hold on. I see yes. I think this is this is a good place to plant the flag. I do believe though that uh, yourself, Sheriff Payne, and yourself, Jamie Mosser, I do believe that and for those listening who live in the county, I do believe that a lot of the opposition to this bill is extrapolated to the goodness that happens mm -hmm. and has happened within the Kane county system. Yes. There are jail, I mean, right now somebody's getting arrested in Itasca or something like that. And the arresting officer is like, ah, we'll get to your phone when you, don't worry about all that. Somewhere right now somebody got a phone and not able to get it. Okay. Or whatever little, you know, well when the shift changes, they'll come and give you the phone. Right. 
that's why I agree with the statewide policy of that. Because the little places where it does happen right. is one one incident too many. Um, is there a, is there a way to maintain professionalism and uh, within the jail system and be able to accommodate individuals with the phone rights? Yes, absolutely. Okay. It, again, it's cleaning up the language. One of the things that I have within this is it says that they're allowed access to their phone. Right. Now, I don't know if you have all of the, your family and friends' phone numbers memorized. I know my husband, that's pretty much it. Right. Right. So, with that being said, I would need to get in my phone to look at anything. What happens if that phone has evidence on it? What what so, let's say it's a telephone harassment crime. Oh! Correct. Right, right. Your phone is remanded into custody. That's Correct. part of evidence. So, and let's say an officer denies you from having access to your phone because it's a part of evidence. Is that an issue? Be it's not spelled out in this. What happens if we give you access to that phone and you hold it and you delete all the evidence out of it? Now, could we undo that? Sure. There's technology for it, but it, it's making it more difficult. What happens I if Sheriff it. Haynes says, give me your password, I'll get that phone number out for you? And then he does that. And then there's constitutional arguments about the fact that now he went into the phone and you shouldn't have any evidence. The problem, again, is the language. I got you. I do I want everybody to have a phone call. And frankly, if we have the definition reasonable in there and people are violating it because they think reasonable is two days later, put a time limit in there. I got you. I'm 100% just fix the language. I got you. That makes sense. That yes. makes sense. I don't believe that the process of intake for inmates should be hard on deputies. I don't believe that. So, so you know, let me just let me just say that I don't I don't think that you know, look, I don't think that guy should be getting steak and lobster <laughs> and your feet up in your you know your house shoes during the intake process. I don't believe that. Mm -hmm. um, I do believe though that the laws need to be updated per the time. Yes. The process seems still seems to be of the, the old days with rotary phones when people were remembering numbers mm -hmm. and now we don't have to plug in the phone before it dies and get my mom's number out of here. Right. So I think that that needs to be updated accordingly. Agreed. Accordingly. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm not for burdening the deputies with undue stuff well, when I a person Well, I don't think it does. Out. If a person has to have a phone call with a certain time limit because people have incorrectly denied people, unconstitutionally denied people. Let's just fix the language again so that it does what it's intended to do, and it makes sure that the rights of defendants are protected just as much as the criminal justice system continues on the way it should. Was law enforcement better before this bill? We were heading in the right direction. Again, broken record, we love this. <laughs> it lays out many things that need to happen. Uh, however, still has a very long way to go. Law enforcement regionally, as I always say, is incredible in my opinion. We have, like I said before, very well-trained officers, uh, incredible police chiefs throughout Kane County. We are spoiled in this region to have the law enforcement that we do. Um, but, again, putting it into law, I support. This is a long way from done. Do you support a statewide standard for officers? Certainly. Okay. We have those. Okay. Yeah. And there are many restrictions already on the books and other laws that are 
I don't know how you want to say it, but remassaged mm -hmm. in this law. <laughs> That's I don't know that I like that. Yeah. Language, but... <laughs> if this bill gets better, I'll change it from remassaged <laughs> to adjust chiropractic. But, no, 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 no. It's that massaged. alone is enough to change it, so he's not remassaging things. Yes. Right. Um, all right, so a couple more things about the bill that have been uh, problematic to folks. Let's talk about how this bill will impact domestic violence cases specifically. Okay. Is this bill, uh, if signed into law, a threat to domestic violence uh, enforcement? No, again, it, it puts some more language in there, so go ahead. I'm sorry. There's people who believe that, though. There's people oh. who believe that right. if Prisoner signs this, fathers. That's it. No, and so part of that is this whole concept of electronic monitoring. So when we talk about electronic monitoring, we understand that that means two things. One, you're on a bracelet in your home and you're not allowed to leave your home. Mm -hmm. Or two, you're out in the community, but it's a GPS device, so we know we see your little dot going all over the place, and you can't go into this protected area. Right. So one of the things, when you're allowed to cut off your bracelet and it's doesn't matter for 48 hours, that's, that's a big thing. The other thing is it put in language that said that electronic monitoring doesn't necessarily need to be electronic, which means we're putting you on electronic monitoring, but there's no bracelet. Please stay home and please don't go to the victim. They got the phone system thing, though. But right? what phone system thing? As in I can call you and you're on your cell phone anywhere? So that, that's the problem again. Yes, it, it lessens our ability to really monitor domestic abusers. And if you look at what's just happened in December and January here in Kane County, we've had a lot of domestic issues, murders. Right. Our domestic violence cases statistically are up, and I think it, we're up like 5%, whereas we're down everywhere else. Ah. I want you to understand that... We're up 20% compared to 2019. Right. So that means it's, it's just our domestic violence is booming. Our abuse and neglect cases, our kids who are being abused and neglected, doubled from the year before to 2020. COVID had an impact on crimes, specifically in the home and domestic, going up, correct? Because folks correct. were not... Yeah. Really, really, really interesting stats. We are up in that category 20%. However, across the board in crime, we're only up 1%, mm -hmm. 2019 to 2020. Right. And it's just a broad disparity where normal calls for service are way down. The type of stuff we used to go to before mm -hmm. isn't happening, like traffic crashes are way down. By the way, the reason why if people watching, people hear me stuttering, the reason why that is and fidgeting is because it's 40 degrees in here. So <laughs> I just want to be clear. Like, man, Sarah, I'm nervous. Yeah. Yeah. Technology is on. just a. I tried to turn it up. It's I don't have huge... any coffee either, so there's a problem. Wait, man, you guys are performing well, but no, I'm, yeah. I'm over here oh, nervous. I'm, I'm, I'm heavily caffeine, but yeah, no, 2020 has such a huge, very bond sized asterisk next to it when it comes to crime and, and what we're seeing out there. And domestic batterers, like, Great answer, Ruthie, and this is your wheelhouse, and that's why I prefer that you talk on domestics, but also the the compelling of a victim to come to court. Mm -hmm. Think about that domestic situation. Right. So yeah, this is going to, to me, it's going to have a dramatic impact on people even calling about a domestic. Victims report. want to read a uh, comment. Uh, glad to hear that Ms. Monster and Sheriff Hain agree with the intent of this bill. I understand the frustration of not being at the table in the creation of the legislation. Surely there is some language that can be improved, but the intent should not change, even if the police don't agree with all of it, like inter uh, external licensing. Do you agree with that statement? Yeah, I think I agree with the entirety of the statement. I don't think law enforcement 
as a whole disagrees with the bill, mm -hmm. um, the huge part that I do disagree with is a disciplinary okay. procedure. I think the problem is that when you put all of this in 764 pages and you ask us to say we like it or we don't like it, the answer is we don't like it because of the language and the bad stuff that's in there. That's the problem with this. If you piecemeal this out, we could say like, don't like. And if we're going to like the majority of it, the intent should never change. The intent of criminal justice reform should not change. How has this bill impacted your job specifically? Well, I've had to read it several times. And instead of being able to focus on what I'm trying to do day to day, I've had to go to a lot of meetings. I've had to read the many versions of it. I've reached out to people. I clearly spent my Sunday night um, commenting on Facebook, and I never comment on Facebook. So it's changed it a lot because we're putting so much focus into making sure that we're heard on this issue, that we're not doing our jobs in the best way that we possibly can. What about for you? Yeah, I, there have been so many distractions over the last two years as sheriff that, yeah, we moved the ball a long way. We got a lot of things done. Um, but you know, between COVID and the civil unrest that begat what we see here, um, the, the massive distractions are taking away from the good that we should be focusing on to truly move the system forward and truly uh, drive the reform that we've been doing. And now that Jamie's on the team, whoo, so excited because we're going to make it happen. But yes, just over the last week, uh, I would say 60% of my focus has been on this. And I am like Jamie. I'm a bad politician. I'm a bull in the china shop. And when I get emotional on things, especially when you're talking about attacking the livelihood and careers of, again, the incredible profession that we have north and south along the Fox River here in Canada that we're so lucky to have, I'm going to get mad. See, that's the and That's why I like talking to you guys. I really do. You can go back to the interviews that we had. like. That right there, that's my only kind of stickler with the bill. Not having sheriff in the in, the, in law enforcement, but the the these the statements of abject hatred and anti. Thank you. I think that that's just I I think it's a little much, you know. I think it's a little much. I um, you know I've had police officers in my family. I personally don't see it as anti-cop, but I really, really enjoy hearing what a law, what law enforcement professionals actually feel about it. Yeah. Why do so many people, you know, it's got to be more to it than just the complaint, right? Mm -hmm. Is it really attacking the heart of the police officer? There's, I would think that there's more worse things that could be included in the bill to truly be anti-cop. This completely shakes the foundation of every single officer's career. Even though qualified immunity and collective bargaining are not in it? Yes. The way it is written regarding the complaint system completely rocks every police officer's foundation. Talking about other, hey, you know, hey, well. <laughs> Keeping it light this morning, right? Yes. <laughs> um, all right, so I want to read something. Read some of the nasty comments. There's got to be something. Oh, well. <laughs> That's always entertaining. No, it, it, it is actually because it, it's it's indicative though, and it highlights what people feel or want to feel or want to think. Um, here's here's one. There's a person who's I, I think mad at me. 
how can you not believe people wouldn't want to be cops as a result of this bill? You keep mentioning this. Even the person with the best intentions would not want to work in a situation where anyone can make an unsubstantiated complaint that would get them fired or would haunt them for their entire career and possibly limit advancement. Yeah, Even in private sector, an employer will look into a complaint unless they were looking for a reason to fire you. Think about it. If one had to choose being a cop under this bill or going into private security, private security might look more appealing. So Curtis, I mean, you've, you've had bosses before. Mm -hmm. You've had jobs that you like. Mm -hmm. You ever had a job where you didn't like your boss? You had that sick feeling in your stomach every day you went to work because you had to look over your shoulder like you felt like you were going to get in trouble for anything you did? Yeah. You ever yes, had that I have. Yeah, and if you have a heart, and which I know you do, and you want to excel at your profession, and you want to provide for your family, and you want to have a solid foundation, and you remember to turn your body camera on every time you should turn your body camera on, you should be able to go to work with pride and comfort in your profession. I've, that's, that's true. I've also, I've also applied for jobs, got the job, been in orientation, and then pulled out of the orientation, so hey, you know, your background check has some 1997 shit, which was dismissed, and you know, uh, we gotta let you go. So, that embarrassment and that knock to my attempted professional growth is problematic. And as much as I understand how bad it would be for records to follow uh, peace officers. I contrast that to a person who is sincerely trying to change their life and not being part of recidivism, still having to answer for a 1997 or whatever the other You know what I mean? I, 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 so I see where law enforcement is coming from with that. I see that from experience. And that weighs more on me than a boss that I don't like, and you know, I know this guy's looking for a reason to fire me, so now here comes, you know, JJ, who I arrested for a gun two years ago, mm -hmm. is now calling, I know it's his voice, you know, calling, oh, Sheriff Payne, beat me up at Don Walker's, you know what I'm saying? I, I feel you, I feel you. That's where I'm coming from with it, and that's why I like talking to you guys about it, because you know, I, I'm able to see both sides of the spectrum, I totally do. I don't think any officer should go to work every single day under the threat of some idiot calling in and making a complaint, you know, from the from the luxury of their home. Keyboard warriors. You and I have talked about this before. Oh yeah. I don't think no key, so hard I don't think any keyboard warrior should be able to get a good deputy fired. And Curtis, that's why I like coming here and talking to you, so feel free to have me on more than once. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, some of us seek Curtis out. I believe I invited you after I asked Curtis. Oh, that's right. Uh, <laughs> I thought you never on his radar. Um, no, you, you, you are on my radar because I do, um, I've been keeping up with the activities of the Kane County Sheriff's Department. I follow you guys on Facebook mm -hmm. all the time and I see what you guys are doing. 
So I'm, you know, always impressed with what you guys got going on. So Curtis, did you know in here, because some of what they did is there's rules in here that if you're a police officer and you commit a crime, that could result in a decertification. Yes, okay? yes. Did you know that it's in here that when a person is applying to be a police officer, if you have something in your criminal background, you can't be a cop? Yes. So I want you to think about your 18, you just turned 18 and you did something stupid and you committed a crime. And that's on your record, even as a supervision or a diversion. You mm -hmm. know what you can never be? A police officer. A police officer. Oh yeah, I, I, I saw that. I, right. I totally did. I totally did. And so that to me is problematic because we're forgetting the stupidity of people when they're 18 to 23 mm -hmm. years of age because we don't make sound decisions. And I've watched, Keith, I didn't even touch on the oh, no, this you're is, this is, uh, I've watched Deputy Keith, Keith Cross from mm -hmm. APD talk about the lack of uh, African-American officers or people African-Americans join the police force or people of color joining police forces. Yes. So, look, I'm on the side of, if you're, if you're going to complain about something, why don't you join? Right. If you've got a problem with it, why don't you go out and take the test? Yeah. I'm an advocate of that, and that's where I'm trying to forge that, you know, I'm, I'm, that's where I'm coming from. Yeah, and let that me happens. say this publicly, I need that at the state's attorney's office, too. Because we don't have diversity in the state's attorney's office. And so I was looking at our resume resume book of the past people who've applied. Mm -hmm. And granted, they're not putting their race down. But I see a lot of people who are here from uh, in this community. I don't see diversity in my office. Right. So I need diversity. So please, I have open spots. I need diverse um, attorneys applying. And of course, you have to have a law degree to, to work there. It's right. incredibly difficult to hire a black police officer, to, to Deputy Chief Cross's point. Uh, and here's the cycle of historic issues. You have uh, an antagonistic relationship with the majority of the community, I shouldn't say the majority of the community, with that community mm -hmm. and law enforcement. So you already have that factor that doesn't want to engage with police, mm -hmm. and certainly doesn't want to work for them. And then, because of our society and what we've created in the drug wars, mm -hmm. and uh, you know the Bill Clinton Cops Grant, and not funding low-income communities and giving them support, we have all these brilliant kids who were 18 to 23 and did something stupid, got that criminal history, that have black skin, and now that they're 25, 26, 30 years old, performing professionally wonderfully and would make outstanding police officers, not a chance, we can't hire them. Right. So that is a cycle that has created the lack of diversity within our, our mm -hmm. staff. Good morning, everybody. All right, so we'll take a, uh, oh, well, let's, let's move on to the next. I know we got another point to talk about, because I, I looked at your one, we'll get a. We going for a three hour show here? You know, let's, let's, we'll, we'll wrap it up. Damn it! This is too much fun. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. We'll do a part, we'll do a part three, part yeah. four. I knew this was going to happen. You put two yeah. politicians in front of a microphone at the same time. Right. It's going to be a long show. Because I want to pull up uh, what you shared with me, Jamie. Uh, so give me just a moment here. I want to pull it up. Uh, those points that you really right. articulated with, with force about the language. Because people need to understand what, uh, what language means when it comes to the law. Mm -hmm. Uh, but while I pull that up, here's something that I found in the bill, and I want to get you guys' All right. Enhances, I want to read a couple of things. Here's what the bill does. Enhances whistleblower protections, mm -hmm. extends all restrictions of the use of force that apply to law enforcement officers to bounty hunters as well. Now, this is, this to me was... Bounty hunters are operating out there besides uh, no. the standard. Uh, <laughs> no, we don't have 
bail bondsmen in Illinois. So we don't have bond holders. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the whole idea of bail bondsmen is a company puts up your bond for you, right. and then if you don't show up, they have the ability to go out and get you. Dog the Bounty Hunter made that popular with yeah. that one. Yeah. We don't have that here. Okay. Yeah. See, this is why it's good to, see, for all you people out there with the crazy comments, this is why it's good to have law enforcement answering things for you. Um, expands the officer misconduct uh, database and requires the maintenance of police misconduct records and requires use of special prosecutors and officer-involved deaths. Mm -hmm. um, that's not already happening? So one of the things that happened, and I want to um, look at kind of what happened with Cook County in terms of the whole, um, Cook County got off of the Jason Van Dyke case. And so they looked around to see if who would take the case. The appellate prosecutor didn't, the attorney general's office didn't, so then they opened it up to all of the prosecutors, the state's attorneys. Right. Joe McMahon is the one who said yes. So again, kudos to him. He, right. he did it. Um, so in officer-involved death cases, we have in Kane County a major crimes task force, which essentially was is through our chiefs of police, and there's a statute specifically that talks about when and how this has to be investigated. And it has to be investigated not using the department who the officer is a part of. So let's right. talk about Aurora. Aurora has an officer involved death. Aurora can't investigate that. This major crimes task force comes in and takes care of that. Okay. And so the state's attorney's office then is the one that is supposed to review those cases. What the statute does is it essentially says that if the state's attorney recuses himself or herself, or a court recuses that state's attorney, then you have to use a special prosecutor to do so. Gotcha. Uh, and and uh, I think a good place, we'll, we'll make this the last point, because uh, this could go on forever. It really could. Uh, it really could. Um, creates new requirements in the event police execute no-knock warrants. This has been a hot-button issue, uh, including that, one, each participating member is assigned a body-worn camera and is following policies procedures. Two, steps are taken in planning to, excuse me, planning the search to ensure accuracy and plan for children or other vulnerable people on site. And three, if an officer becomes aware the search warrant was executed in an address unit or apartment different from the location listed on the warrant, that member will notify a supervisor who will ensure an internal investigation ensues. Mm -hmm. um, what's the process now for no-knock warrants? So the process in the search warrant, in order to get a no-knock warrant, what, we have, what the law enforcement has to do is say that there is a danger either to the community or to the police officers if they were to announce their presence ahead of time. Right. So People on the run. Correct. I don't see this as being an issue at all, and I don't know that you have an objection to this portion because, again, it's just adding a level of safety, especially for vulnerable individuals inside of a home. I don't ever search in, or serve any search warrants, so I'm going to defer to Sheriff Hayne on this one. Yeah, so as a 15-year as a narcotics investigator and a 15-plus year SWAT team leader, um, I've done my fair share of search warrants. I am not a fan of any dynamic entry search warrant. That means knocking down a door and, and forcing the confrontation inside that house, you know, the way you see it on TV where mm -hmm. police search warrant, boom, and then everybody runs in the house and everybody put, gets put down on, right. on their face and handcuffed. I'm not a fan of that. There's more than one way to skin a cat, as one of my favorite uh, police commanders always says. And we serve search warrants. We make every attempt to serve a search warrant 
without any conflict. I don't want to give away all the tactics. But without breaking down the door and making that dynamic entry, because again, that forces the confrontation. In my 23 years of law enforcement, I have only served one no-knock warrant. And I wrote that warrant and got it, you know, and I served it myself. Got it signed by a judge, and uh, we did a no-knock entry on somebody who was literally running guns. But only time I've ever charged somebody with the charge of gun running in my career, but he was selling, you know, multiple uh, handguns and rifles, and this was truly a dangerous individual. Yeah. Um, wow, that's interesting. So effective surveillance. Mm-hmm. Yes. It cuts you somewhere away from said residence. It's a perhaps. Much more, right, perhaps. perhaps. We're not giving it away on the show. And I can't wrap my head around having served, man, hundreds of search warrants. How do you hit the wrong house? <laughs> I just, how, how does that happen? I, yeah. Well, I got to tell you this Google will take everybody to my neighbor's house, so. Yeah. Yes, but police. I know, I know. Right. When they're involved in the investigation, they damn well better have eyes on that house on multiple occasions to where they can describe it in their sleep. And then when they go to execute said warrant, yeah. they better be able to lead that team up to said house to execute said warrant. Right. Okay, I'll, I'll give that's, this one. That's where every proper procedure right. operates when it comes to the warrant service. Um, so it's 9.49 a.m. You guys have been watching and listening to Good Morning Aurora, the second largest city's first daily news podcast, and we're uh, pleased to be discussing HB 3653, the police mm-hmm. reform bill not yet signed into law with Jamie Mosser and Sheriff Hain. Um, so I think to end, I think to end, two things. One, what's engagement looking like with the sponsors of this bill? What's next with that? To speak to them and work with the lawmakers? Is that on the table? Yeah, it really seems like where we are right now is working with our local legislators um, who are reciprocating the engagement with us. Um, There are a couple who are not reciprocating the engagement. With me, at least. I won't speak for you. Everybody what? likes me, so I'm getting yes. reciprocated. I'm a bit of a bull in a china shop, like I mentioned, so I'm sure I made somebody upset at me. Uh, actually, I know I have. <laughs> yes. Yeah, actually, I know I have. So um, they are productive conversations, by and large. We just hope that they can carry that message back to the House floor and the Senate floor, and they can all meet in the middle. And we're relying on, I know I'm relying on our state sheriff's association, which I actually dissent from them on quite a few things that they oppose in this bill, I support. So I am relying on them to carry the overall message. You know, I listen to you, Sheriff, and I watch what you're doing, and then I hear voices like the, who's the guy from the Chicago FOP? Oh, doing, yeah, I don't even put me in the same room with that guy. I mean, I, and I think that's a problem that people have with this bill. Mm-hmm. I mean, how can there exist that, mm-hmm. that, that, Ideology. That's soft. And, right? That's the problem. And that's been some of my concern with law enforcement through these conversations. Um, Again, here goes the bull in the China show. So, Sheriff's Association will march, you know, old white conservative sheriffs down there to engage Mm -hmm. with the Black Caucus and they'll use examples like, um, well, hey, if you do this end of cash bail, we're going to lose revenue and funding. Right. Guys, that's a horrible, horrible argument. It doesn't seem like law enforcement, something that we talked about with laws, it doesn't seem like the, the, it doesn't seem like law enforcement as a profession of practice has evolved much in its way of thinking and practice. Now I'm talking, you know, the, the tech, look, the tech is great. The ability to stop crimes and intervene 
has definitely increased. Yeah. But it does not seem like the thought process behind policing has changed much from 1933, I, you know, right? But isn't that the laws that we created that's really doing that? No, I, I, right. I, I So disagree. in this, in this bill, a few times. shocker, in this bill, does it say anything about what we should be doing with the individuals who we are detaining? No. There's a, a little bit of stuff, right? Uh, rights for about people who no, no, no. detaining prisoners, citizen rights? Right, so I'm talking about, they're giving a lot of credit in ah. sentencing. That's what they're doing. You're okay. going to get credit for it, but it's not really mandating. It's not mandating what Ron has done in his jail. That's what I want to see. I want to see us taking a proactive approach to actually getting to the root of the criminal justice problem. I want to see them actually deal with expungement and sealing laws. Why can't we expunge and seal a lot more? If you're found not guilty or a case is dismissed, that should automatically go off your record. Why do right. people have to go in and pay $232.57 in Kane County to file that to get it off your record? I think that there are a lot of common sense approaches that we can take to actually do what we're supposed to do to change policing, but it's going to mean, and that, is this the camera, is this camera, Both. funding needs to be given to our social services agencies so that we can actually deal with the issues that we have, so that we have a place for people to go to receive treatment, so that people have a place to go when they lack resources, because all that we have right now is jail. So you're halfway there, right. and I'll, I'll end with this. So this, we keep pointing for those that are just listening. Yeah. This is, we keep pointing to the bill that Jamie brought, the, the big picture. It looks like a telephone book for those who are not able to see it. This is a paradigm shift, right? Mm -hmm. So you can enact laws that shift the paradigm. Now we have to worry about the mindset shift, which is your point. It's going to take a heck of a lot longer to get the mindsets of law enforcement to catch up with the direction of this bill. Even if we do all those wonderful things mm -hmm. in, in funding uh, you know, social services and mental health and whatever else, addiction counseling right. in, the, in the community. I'll give the example of my correction officers. When I took over as sheriff, and I implemented all those programs right out of the gate, the officers joke with me now because they'll say, man, when you came in, you had about 10% of us that actually agreed with what you were trying to do and you know saw the future in it. And I said, well, how about now? Where are we at? And the, the answer has been unified. Uh, you're running about 60, 70%. You're doing pretty good. That only took two years <laughs> yeah. to start showing people, yeah. start proving people that this is how correction should be run. Now look at police officers looking at this bill and what this bill is trying to accomplish. So we have to help them shift in the direction that our society needs to head. And it's not an easy task. And prosecutors. That's your problem. Um, that's not <laughs> yeah, it's your prosecutors. Actually, your prosecutors are my problem sometimes. <laughs> so yes, that's that's what's going to take the longest to, uh, to better our profession. Um, ending thoughts to those uh, to those people in the community who have reservations about the bill? Who have reservations? Mm -hmm. So my ending thought is that it has a lot of good in it, and we need to push forward with it, mm -hmm. but we need to do it in a way that actually does what it's intended to do, and we're ready and willing. Right, and from your, from your exact perspective, mm -hmm. the language in the bill in certain aspects of it is problematic and creates, or could create, bigger problems. Yes. Okay. And ending thoughts, Sheriff, on the bill? Yeah, we're, uh, as a sheriff, just like a state's attorney, I have a great deal of autonomy, uh, especially when it comes to protecting public safety in our community. Um, if, if this bill is enacted, 
regardless of any changes, people should not be completely concerned because I'm going to do whatever it takes to keep our public safe. Um, and that is, of course, within the law. Again, our policies, our procedures, our actions, our equipment mirror this new law, almost to a T. What's going to be an interesting experience is the cashless bail system. We'll work together. We're poised with electronic monitoring. We'll keep tabs on people. We'll continue to provide counseling out in the community. We'll continue to provide those services that are unfunded, that should be funded by the state, to anybody that will engage in them. And hopefully the courts will help us mandate people to go to them. But uh, as, as far as being scared um, or, or truly concerned about it, I don't think folks should lose any sleep. We'll get this right. right. And we'll do what it takes. If there's some things that aren't right, we'll do what it takes to protect our community. Well, I appreciate that, man. That's, 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 that's the message right there. Because, you know, I, I appreciate that. Because I, you know, I've, I've been overwhelmed and I've been looking like, man, how, you know, like, there's gotta be, you know what I'm saying? I'm sure that, you know, life will not turn into, turn into Terminator 2. When this, you know, Skynet and watch out, you're, you know, people are going to eat rats and all that. Um, so, no, I do appreciate that. We appreciate you guys sitting down and uh, talking to us, taking some time to explain the bill to ourselves and to all the listeners. So, for all you listeners out there, you know, I don't care what link your grandma sent you to what website. You can get all of the facts and information here. Uh, this has been a great conversation with two of our great public servants, Sheriff Ron Hain and State's Attorney Jamie Mosser. Um, this, video, this video will be up and it will be on YouTube uh, maybe tomorrow for those who want to listen. We appreciate the comments from all you guys. And from us to you, have a blessed, safe, and law-enforced Thursday. Don't break the law out there. Law enforcement support Thursday. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm not going to do that. There you go. <laughs>